Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hi, we're the Marindas and you're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855am. And welcome to Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. And as usual, we begin with Mr Kevin Healy. A week, Jan, listener, when we left the government last week swaying precariously between supporting our very, very, very close friend, the US of the UN of the US of the world, in attacking evil China politically and our dependence on not-so-evil China economically. And this week, the Minister for Fossils, Angus Tailings, has made the impossible task even more impossible by attempting to balance on the bars with a giant dinosaur posing a danger to the dinosaur and himself as well as the bar itself. Um, Angus, what are you doing? Balance. We must have balance. Uh, But what about the dinosaur that the bar will collapse? We must have the dinosaur if we're going to have balance. Uh, But but what if the sun burns it or, or the wind blows it off? That would be a tragedy for the dinosaur economy, for balance. And with that, he lost his and crashed onto the mat and, oh, oh, I can't look, but the dinosaurs crashed onto poor Angus. Angus, in announcing his fossil solution to fossil pollution, carbon sequestration, for instance, that is, sticking your head in the sand, said extreme solutions are not going to work. But for those encouraged by that, Angus's interpretation of extreme solutions is renewable energy, that, ec- that economy destroyer, because Angus and the team know that fossils are good for the economy and renewables are bad for the economy. So I've got no idea how the renewables get to wherever they are, get constructed, where that construction material comes from, and then keep producing and providing the power that will... Well, it must be an economy-destroying miracle. As big a miracle as that lot ever conceding renewables may have an environmental and economic benefit. On the evil China, good China balance, the Minister for Being Totally Useless, Simon Birmingham and Aring, pleaded with good China to cease its trade war. Bali, he yelled, or would have yelled if his Chinese counterpart didn't totally ignore him. While the evil China balance was rendered even more precarious, teetering dangerously like the government and Angus and the dinosaur, as evil China accused True Blue Aussie, (laughs) talk about unsubstantiated fantasies, of being a dog of the US of. An allegation scotched immediately by the US of Ambassador, who said the world listened to True Blue Aussie when we speak, and will continue to listen to True Blue Aussie as long as True Blue Aussie listens to our orders. Also on balance, industrial relations charging out of balance with that decision Wednesday. We recall discussing on the week that was before the last election, then Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, Kelly Odawire Workers So Evil, intervening in a case to challenge an earlier ruling that casual workers who are really permanent workers have a right to entitlements like holiday pay, sick leave, all the entitlements of permanent workers, which sent caring employers into apoplexy. Well, this week the court ruled that way again, leading poor caring employers to declare the economy would collapse entirely, which many of us thought it had. 
and the now Minister Christian Portaloo said the government, having lost the case, would legislate to make the decision redundant, change the law it just lost, prompting to us, us to ask why waste all that time and expense on the case in the first place and leading us to remind ourselves what does the separation of powers mean again? Rushing rush legislation through to protect caring employers against the avarice of evil unions and workers. <laughs> Fancy that. The government accuses these workers of double dipping. And in its balanced way, Thursday's True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review P1 showed where it stands on the issue. Workers can double dip, it headlined. No parenthesis, just a given. Balance. After the parvenu retail and fast food evil union had an agreement with fast food behemoth McDonald's rejected on the specious grounds that it ripped off the mostly young workers, the long-term good union, the Shop the Workers Union and the ACTU, which backed the slashing of wages and conditions, now say they feel there may be a case for a few changes to what they had agreed to, again leaving us to ask, how come they miss the problems they've now noticed in the first place? Little problems like ripping off the mostly young workers. On good, healthy, salt, sugar and fat junk food, or bad fat junk food, I think the wheat that was has for too long, far too long, concentrated on the unimportant, the not-so-important things in life like industrial matters, climate change and environmental destruction, trained killing, poverty, oppression, exploitation, those sort of irrelevancies. So I thought it time to discuss the truly important, like the commercial tele-channel excitedly alerting us Two weeks to Big Brother. And this week it'll be one week. Now I thought Big Brother had sunk to such depths that even the locked-on reality TV addicts, well, so-called reality, which is about as real as a flying saucer, addicts had even unlocked themselves. But Big B is back, and here's the salt, sugar, and fat, bad junk food connection. It's being proudly sponsored by KFC creating the perfect scenario. Sit back watching Big Brother with a bucket of the sponsor's crap and we can wipe out our minds and bodies simultaneously. Brain dead and body dead. Unlikely to still be around to enjoy the next night's excitement. Win-win. Another truly, truly important part of life, and if there's dear little children present, listen to a language warning for this next item. Another truly, truly important part of life in the world of reality TV is this spate of home renovation programs, gripping stuff. And the promos show people seeing the renovation for the first time and bursting into tears, shocked looks, gasps, deep emotional stuff, always thrilled by it all. Oh, it's magnificent. And I reckon to prove they are reality, we need to see a promo with the person opening the door, looking into the room and declaring, Christ, it's shit. Another win-win, or at least not lose-lose, the man who realised we were facing a pandemic before anyone else in the whole world, US our big supremo Donald Trample the Poor, who obviously didn't want to create panic by sharing his knowledge with those who would perish in the pandemic he alone foresaw. Biggest only person ever, ever, has now come up with a win-win, can't-lose-lose solution as he keeps himself healthy by taking hydroxychloroquine, which might do him good, or some good, if he's got um, malaria. Although Donald said, even if it doesn't work, 
you're not going to get sick and die. Unlike the 90,000 and growing who have got sick and died of that, which the only man who knew forgot to tell them or didn't tell them for their own good. Although medical experts, but what would they know compared to Donald, warn it has serious side effects including heart arrhythmia. So, so when we think about it, we should encourage Donald to keep using it and maybe inject himself with a litre or two of disinfectant, that other miracle cure he discovered. Also a fan of hydroxychloroquine is his very, very close friend, a great man. He's done great things, like agree with me, best agree ever, ever. Brazilian Supremo Joe Bolsonaro, who knows it isn't a pandemic, but a little flu, which flew through and is flying through his population more than just a little. But his supporters came out this week to agree with him, having composed a truly beautiful song just for the occasion. Chloroquine, I know you save me in the name of Jesus. So moving, so beautiful, and thanks to Chloroquine and the dear baby Jesus, they should be as safe as Angus tailings up there with the dinosaur. And as a bonus, the experts who know predict that Chloroquine, I know you saved me in the name of Jesus, will dominate this year's Grammys when and if they are held. Amid the relentless campaign by the caring business class that giving them a boost is far more important than a few more deaths and illness, the latest target is the states that refuse to reopen their borders. Selfish, selfish premiers, despite, speaking of death and illness, many respectable practitioners of the greatest little economic order pointing out it stops them making a killing. So finally, let's finish with our own beautiful composition. Jesus knows it's a true win-win. We'll all be saved by chloroquine. Not to take it is a sin. And balance means we need lots more of Angus Tailing's dinosaur. So beautiful. No, one more. This week, Donald called someone a wacko. Repeat, this week, Donald called someone a wacko. That is, someone else a wacko. Good afternoon. None other than Kevin Healy. Do you need to renew your subscription? Make a donation. Or pass on some information to a programmer. We can't get to the phone all the time right now, but we're still here. You can call us on 03... 94198377 Each weekday between 1 and 5pm and talk to a staff member. That's 03-9419-8377 3CR Community Radio, here to stay. Regular listeners might remember a while ago I spoke with Dr Megan Davidson the CEO of Wildlife Victoria, about the devastation brought by the recent bushfires. Her final words were that it was imperative for the remaining forest to be protected if the already depleted biodiversity was to be saved. I then spoke with Chris Tunga, spokesperson for the Goongarra Environment Centre in East Gippsland, and asked first to look back on the summer and what it's meant, particularly for East Gippsland, where the warning signs were that they were facing a really bad summer? Yeah, I think that there were definitely factors leading up to the fires that were very concerning. There was drought in East Gippsland, very dry there. There had been fairly large bushfire event in 
2014, so just a few years before, and a lot of the residents in Goongra were preparing for a big fire to hit leading up, in the weeks leading up. But, yeah, the extent of the fire and just how hot it burned in some really key areas where usually those kind of forests don't burn, rainforests, wet forests, that was really the shocking part of it that sort of made these an unprecedented event. How long after was it were you able to get back there and have a look for yourself? It was a few months. It took a bit of time for the Princess Highway to be opened and then the forest tracks that that go out into the forest around around Goongra, Quark, those areas. They were closed for some time, so it did take a little bit of time before we were able to go out and have a look at, at the damage and what had happened. And how did it impact on you, seeing it like that? Uh, it was devastating. Uh, going to, to Quark was especially upsetting. It's really, really rare areas of forests. Um, it's a crossover of cool temperate and warm temperate rainforest, which you don't get anywhere else uh, in Australia. Seeing the impact of the fire there was especially concerning and honestly devastating. The impact of the bushfires have been devastating. What were conservationists hoping for from the government in light of that devastation to ensure that what remains protected? I think that given given so much, uh, so so many areas of forest burnt, and so so much wildlife was also affected and biodiversity as well, uh, that there would be a moratorium on logging, and also that uh, salvage logging wouldn't be going ahead given how devastating the fires were and the impacts. And I think that really the government needs to respond with increased protections for threatened species because they have been so badly impacted. But because of COVID-19, it's been really difficult to go out and do on-the-ground assessments, so it makes it really difficult. But I think the key thing is, is that the government has now announced plans to start salvage logging in East Gippsland. And really, it's only been a few months since the fires, and it just seems as if they're rushing in to do this without actually considering impacts. And that's really disappointing and very irresponsible, and we're extremely disappointed with with what the government has announced and what they're doing. What do you see the impacts will be? I mean, salvage logging has the potential to halt the recovery of fire-affected forests for, the research is saying, 100 years. So these forests have taken a massive hit from the fires. Wildlife is under stress. The soil is exposed. Waterways have been damaged. And bringing heavy machinery into those areas is only going to put it under so much more stress. And, And really the science says that the impacts are just, Astronomical. It's one of the worst forms of logging, post-fire logging. The fact that the government is ignoring the science, they're ignoring the community, there's absolutely no social licence to log uh, forests within the fire extent or outside the fire extent really, considering they're key refuges of habitat in the last remaining green forests. Yeah, we're just absolutely shocked. You mentioned the 2014 fire. Was there post-fire logging then? I don't think that the impacts were on sort of forests that were available to be logged 
weren't as heavily impacted as as the most recent bushfires. There was uh, a massive forage logging operation after the 2009 fires in Central Highlands. And who are the companies who are going in there to do this work? The logging is conducted by the Victorian Government Logging Agency, Vic Forest. It's a government-owned logging agency. Do other states such as Tasmania or New South Wales have their own state-owned logging companies? Yeah, yeah, they're state-based logging, government logging companies, yeah. I'm not sure, I'm not sure whether New South Wales, if it's a private company, whether it's owned by the government, I'm not sure about the situation in other states, but in Victoria, it's a state-owned logging company. Have they already started? Yeah, so they've started salvage logging just north of Dargo and south of the Alpine National Park in an area which there is threatened species recorded in the area, the alpine tree frog, which has been yeah, heavily impacted by uh, past bushfires and certainly, um, and certainly those most recent bushfires. The stresses really for, for animals, it's just, it's immense, yeah. How many animals use logs? The logs provide, um, even yeah, even fallen timber provides important habit, um, habitat for for ground dwelling animals like long footed potaroo. And because the fire takes out so much of the of the understory and the and the ground vegetation, it means that animals are much more vulnerable to predation from foxes and cats. And so, fallen logs provide cover for animals, and also a lot of the hollow bearing trees survive some of the less intense fires, they're also still really critical habitat for threatened species. And I really believe that if by some miracle animals were survived the fires, they will die if, if those areas are then salvage logged. To what use is that timber put, salvage timber? Most of it will end up going to wood chips and some of it will go to retailers like Bunnings, yeah, so I think as well, given that the, tim- that the timber or the, the wood that comes out of the forest is, is going to be highly unethical and, and, and contentious, I think that companies that are stocking these products need to consider, you know, consumers are more and more interested in buying ethical products, sustainable products, and products that aren't actually contributing to the decline of threatened species and, and collapse of ecosystems. And, and so I think that both Bunnings and Officeworks definitely should be separating themselves and, and making a commitment not to stock products that are coming out of the fire extent. Have conservationists put this to these companies? Uh, Bunnings and Officeworks have made a commitment that by the end of this year they won't be stocking products that don't have FSC uh, Forest Stewardship Council certification and so far Vic Forest hasn't been able to achieve it. So I think that given that commitment is already there, that's a really good first step. But there's certainly time between now and then where there's a real potential that they could be selling products from burnt forests in East Gippsland and also the last remaining unburnt forests across Victoria, which are really critical for threatened species. It's not just conservationists such as yourself who have these views it's well-renowned scientist. Can you talk about Professor David Lindenmeyer? Yeah, so Professor David Lindenmeyer, he's a renowned forest ecologist and really 
a really respected voice in the scientific community, sort of really the leading voice on conservation and land management. And so he's written extensively on the impacts of salvage logging and also uh, the links between logging and bushfire severity and increased risk of bushfire. So, yeah, he's really a leading voice in the space. The response of the government to his concerns? Kungur Environment Centre, we received a letter from the CEO of the government logging agency, Vic Forest, which denounced his scientific work. And really it was quite shocking considering how respected and, and renowned he is and it really just goes to show that this government logging agency, they're not interested in science, they're anti-science and by denying the effects of the devastating impacts of salvage logging, it's akin to climate change denial. The, the facts and the science is there and to deny it is, yeah, it's, it's absurd. It's absurd. Has he responded to this attack on him by the government? Yeah, I think that he, um, Vic Forrest came out and said, and there was an age, there was an age exclusive that came out uh, from this story. Um, and the state government actually, or government officials, came out and backed and backed Lyndon Meyer and, and said that that was that what the CEO had said was not their opinion or was not their view. Yeah, David was given the chance to to respond. And as well, you know, he spoke about the fact that he's one of the only scientists that has written extensively on the impacts of salvage logging. He's he's really doing doing the research and doing and doing this work. And it's so important that what the government does and what Vic Forest does is informed by science, which is that if they go and and log in these fire affected areas, it's going to have catastrophic impacts for threatened species and for for the recovery of forests. And how many areas of the bush is this company looking to log? How extensive is it? They have plans to log thousands of hectares of forests in the fire extent, so they're really operating just business as usual, as if the fires didn't happen. Any areas that were allocated to them before the bushfires, they believe that they have the right to go into those areas and log, regardless of the impacts of the fires to threatened species, regardless of the impacts of of, um, of logging on those recovering forests. So, I think that those plans to log thousands of hectares really need to be abandoned by the government. I think that it would be grossly irresponsible to go ahead with those plans. What's the alternative? for the government if they don't use these logs? What else is there? What's really important now is that the government has already acknowledged that the timber industry is not sustainable with their November announcement uh, last year that native forest logging would be ending by 2030. And the Premier, Dan Andrews, has acknowledged multiple times that a massive fire event could wipe out the industry. And what we saw over the summer, that that was that massive fire fire event. It was unprecedented and, and catastrophic. And so I think the government has a responsibility to bring forward that transition and make sure that the money is available for those workers so that they can transition as part of the transition plan. Money for, for workers to transition out of the industry wasn't going to be available until 2024, they must bring that for, that date forward to give workers the opportunity to find secure employment because 
the industry is not sustainable and it cannot be sustained, I think, not only because of the bushfires but from years of overlogging and also the threat of future bushfires. The government actually owes it to those workers to support them to transition. And I'd imagine it would be fairly dangerous work too, logging in areas that have been burnt. Yeah. We're we're just going to keep up the pressure on the government and keep advocating for the protection of protection of forests in East Gippsland, which is so sorely needed so that wildlife and forests can recover. That's our our main goal and yeah, we're just gonna keep working keep working at it. And what are you asking people listening or finding out about this issue to do to help? We have an email action on our website at the moment, uh, which people can find their name onto and send an email to the Premier and to the Environment Minister and the Agriculture Minister. And I think the importance of contacting decision makers cannot be overstated. Sometimes it can feel like it's falling on deaf ears, but it's so important that they know that Victorians don't want this to go go ahead. And I think that the more the people email, the more the people write, the more the people call, the more they know that the public is not going to is not going to stand by while the government goes ahead with these plans. So it's really, really important. So if people can do that, that would be that would be really amazing. And we can just keep up the pressure. And I suppose in one sense the government relies on out of sight, out of mind with these logging practices. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of it happens in places where people don't usually go and it's usually been up to volunteers and conservationists to monitor and keep an eye on on, on what's going on. So the responsibility is left is left to citizens really to keep to keep the government accountable and to, to keep the logging industry in check. Okay, so yeah. can I have that email address? Our website is uh gecko .org.au, that's G-E-C-O. And then there's a tab on there that says Take Action and you can email the Premier through there. Thanks, Chris. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Chris from the Goongarra Environment Centre in East Gippsland. Throughout the month of June, we'll be asking you, the listener, to support radical community-owned media during our June Station Appeal. We'll be taking donations online to help keep the station going for another year. Like so many community organisations, we're feeling the impact of COVID-19 restrictions, and we know you are too. But independent community media is more important than ever, and we hope you can show your support with a donation. The 3CR Station Appeal starts on Monday the 1st of June. To donate, go to 3cr.org.au. 3CR, here to stay. Continuing my interview with Sasha Kelis-Lakakis, who spent the first three months of this year in Cuba at the University of Havana, unfortunately cut short by the coronavirus. Last week, Sasha spoke of two of the subjects studied, history of Cuba and public health. The third was Africa and the Middle East. It was very much 
a holistic approach to the history of Africa and the Middle East, and they actually ended up starting way back when with the um, the emergence of the first societies in those two parts of the world, so looking at the different tribal structures in Africa and the different uh, ancient kingdoms that existed in Africa prior to, to the European invasion and colonisation. And similarly with the Middle East, they had a look at, you know, the rise of Muhammad the Prophet and the, you know, the, the spread of the Islamic faith in the Middle East and how that came about. But certainly, you know, the most the most pertinent part, I suppose, for, for the modern day was looking at the independence movements and the decolonisation processes in Africa and the Middle East in the 20th century. And they even did go a bit into the 21st century. But um, unfortunately, I had to leave before we could get into too much of that. And it was it was very interesting to look at look at the way the Cubans perceived these different movements, in particular the African ones, because the Cubans almost see themselves as as you know as owing a debt to Africa. Um, after all, a lot of Cubans do have African blood, African origin, and you know when they went in and contributed to the to the liberation struggles in countries like Angola and Ethiopia and Mozambique, they almost saw it as they were repaying a debt they owed to Africa which is a very interesting way of looking at, at the relationship between the two countries, I think. It's quite true in many ways because, you know, I mean, their histories were shared for so long. African slaves were sent to Latin America and they comprised such a significant part of the population there. And even with the Middle East, um, you wouldn't think that there was, you know, much of, a, much of a resemblance or a link between Latin America and the Middle East of all places. But, you know, they've been united more than ever most recently because they've both been at the forefront of U.S. aggression. So that has often drawn Cuba and countries like Iran, Lebanon, Syria together. Also, the dreadful treatment of the the slaves that were brought from Africa to Cuba. Yeah, I mean, it it was just barbaric the way the, um, the Spanish treated the slaves in Cuba. I mean, you know, there was violence of the most the most terrible sort, um, whippings, abuse, mutilation of limbs, um, like your hands or your or your or your legs or your feet, if you so much as stepped out of line. Particularly that there's even recorded instances of particularly cruel um, Spanish slave owners dunking unruly slaves in, in boiling vats of sugar of, of like treacle, um, which which is just disgusting. So there is, there's a very long history of, um, of oppression of the, of the African slave population in Cuba. And that is, of course, why African slaves became such an integral part of the independence movement and the liberation wars. A lot of, a lot of the foot soldiers and even some of the commanders of the time beca- were, were in fact formerly African slaves or had African origins. But, which, you know, isn't surprising at all because they were one of the most, if not the most, oppressed group of people in Cuba at the time. And, of course, the role of Afro-Cubans in the society yes. in Cuba since the revolution. Yeah, well, I mean, and, and as I was saying, I think, last time, that this is one of the, you know, the most remarkable things about, about the Cuban revolution in that, you know, the racial divides that, that did exist have, have largely been, you know, abolished. So you'll see members, you know, occupying the highest positions of government, like the vice president. Uh, I'm pretty certain he's an, he's an Afro-Cuban. High-ranking members of the Federation of Cuban Women and the Union of Cuban Writers and Artists are also Afro-Cubans. And, of course, Afro-Cuban literature and Afro-Cuban tradition, an artistic tradition, is now, of course, openly promoted and celebrated in Cuba um, as being an essential part of their history and of their cultural and of their cultural development. Yeah, so, so it is certainly um, it is certainly something quite inspiring to see, and even even amongst uh, like for example the peasant population, whereas once upon a time yes you had you had poor 
white or criollo Cubans working alongside black Cubans, the criollos would still earn a significantly higher wage. And oftentimes the Africans, the Afro-Cubans wouldn't earn a wage at all. And that persisted even to the official abolition of slavery, pretty much up until the revolution, really, in a lot of parts of the country. And now you'll see them working side by side, earning the exact same, um, the exact same wage, working under the exact same conditions. So yeah, that's one of the most remarkable things that you see when you go to Cuba. It's that, that racial harmony, because if you go to most other parts of Latin America, people will still be turned away for, at bars and, and things like that based on their skin colour. Uh, in a lot of countries, for example, Peru and Brazil, Colombia, I mean, people are still killed, just outright killed based on the colour of their skin in, in most other parts of the Americas today. So, yeah, it's quite a significant achievement, I'd say, that Cuba's managed to, to achieve. Talk about the accommodation that you had while you were studying Cuba. There were homestays. What did that involve for you? Every student was allocated what are called in Cuba casas particulares, which, which is essentially a homestay with a family or an individual or a pair. You know, you, you sleep there in their house and they are responsible for, you know, feeding you um, breakfast and dinner. They help you with the laundry, um, you know, pretty much, pretty much help, helping you with, with all your sort of domestic needs while you're there. It is undoubtedly the best way to stay. If you, if you do travel in Cuba, there's a lot of options to choose from in terms of, in terms of just the number of homestays that are available. There's, there's a lot of websites you can look up and almost all, not all of them, but pretty much all of them are, you know, are filled with welcoming people who, who will do their best to give you the, the ultimate experience while you're there. And our homestay was, was just absolutely special. I, I'd say one of the highlights of my stay there. Our homestead was called Casa Ana, named after Ana, the, the owner of the home. She had been running the house as, as a Casa Particular for about three or four years prior to our arrival. And the people that we stayed with there were, were just, it was just a fascinating family. Her grandfather was a, a key figure actually in the revolution. He'd fought with Fidel and Che and Raul. He actually founded a branch of the Cuban Communist Party in the central part of the island. And afterwards, he'd ended up working with Celia Sanchez. This is after the revolution, and she was one of Fidel's closest um, advisors and, and friends. He would tell me about, um, you know, his time organising in the in the central in the central sugar plantations of Cuba, and how they managed to, you know, draw so many workers into the fold. Uh, he ended up going on internationalist missions in Angola and Madagascar and the Congo once the revolution triumphed. He was an absolute, you know, fountain of knowledge, and I thankfully I managed to record a lot of what he said. So, so we've got that, we, we've got that knowledge. And I think I mentioned that Anna's mother or the grandmother of the house was um, Nina, and she was from the ex-Soviet Union. Um, she'd come over in the 80s to teach Russian at the University of Havana. And like I said, when you know, when socialism collapsed in Eastern Europe and Russia, she couldn't bring herself to go back. She was hearing um, about all the terrible things that were happening with the return of capitalism in Russia and how difficult it was for people to survive after that point. And she, you know, she opted to stay, to stay in Cuba, even as bad as, as, as Cuba, or as difficult as life in Cuba was during the special period when they essentially lost almost all of their trade because the socialist bloc collapsed. Did you talk about the fact that quite a number of Russians came to Cuba? Yeah, well, actually, she um, she ended up introducing me to a lot of her Russian friends. There were about 10 or 12 of them just within her circle of friends who had also, you know, done similar things, had come to Cuba in some capacity before the collapse in 1991. You know, they'd opted to stay there instead or they'd already married a Cuban and decided to stay there. 
Mr. Hers is not an isolated case, I guess is the point. That a lot of you know, a lot of people who, who ended up going across to Cuba from the Eastern Bloc, they preferred life the, the, the way the Cubans had it, in spite of the challenges that, that still exist in, in Cuban society. It's nothing compared to the to the gangster capitalism and the and the poverty and the violence that engulfed Eastern Europe and Russia in the nineties. And you know, they made that point very clear. Because um, some of them were even from, for example, the Ukraine, and they, and, you know, and they were talking about, you know, how ridiculous it was that the that the Ukraine and Russia had been the same country for so many years, and now, um, and now there was a war where thousands had died over these these really irrelevant notions of nationalism and 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 trying to join the European Union on Ukraine's part. Um, so it was, you know, it was very interesting to hear their perspective. And definitely an extended family in that household. So we had we ended up having the great grandparents, the the grandmother. Her husband had actually ended up defecting to Florida, which was we never met him. Obviously, he was over in in the United States, but she had um she had nothing <laughs> nothing nice to say about him. So yeah, we had Nina, Anna, her daughter, and Anna's daughter, who was 15 years old, and Anna's husband, of course. And Anna's husband was actually um, an interesting case. He was actually a practitioner of the the Yoruba religion, which is an Afro-Cuban religion. He was actually quite. I don't know what the the exact way to translate this, I guess, into a, into Christian terms is, but um, I guess he he was like a a religious advisor, a religious counselor. So we'd often see people coming in to the house to come and and ask for advice on a particular issue, and he and he was viewed by the community as you know as having the training and the connection with with, with the pantheon, the Yoruba pantheon, to be able to offer that advice. So it was a very interesting insight into into Afro-Cuban religion as well. It must have been a fairly large house. Yes, so there were there were two stories. We never went up to the second story because I believe there was actually another family that lived there as well, in addition to some members of, of Anna's family. And then, yeah, downstairs there were also a couple of bedrooms um, and, of course, our quarters were, were out the back, close to the to the garden, which was a very nice little position. It is very, it's very interesting because housing has been one of the challenges that, that the Cuban government has had to face because they can't often get or import the, the raw materials needed to, to, to build new housing. So, you know, they do have to be quite creative and quite communal in the way that they, they share the spaces they've got. Um, so you'll often, you know, you'll often have families that are quite good friends or that have known each other for some time living within the same building on different store, on different floors or, um, you know, splitting the house that's particularly large into two, I guess, into two units. But the, the government actually did end up um, exceeding its 2019 projections for, for housing construction. But, but the president himself has even said, you know, yes, we did build more houses than, than we had anticipated. But, you know, there's still, there's still more that needs to be done. There's still more that we, can, that, that we have to build to make sure that, that everyone is living in, you know, optimal, optimal conditions. You weren't the only student there, were you? No. So I, I was with three other students. Another another guy and two girls, and they were all from the United States. In my in my particular house, you didn't cook for yourselves. No, well we were going to um, we were going to for one of our for one of my roommates' birthdays, but we had to leave before that before that came around. It was Anna and Nina who who did the they cooked breakfast and dinner for us every day except the weekends. That was when you know we had the the chance to go to different restaurants and try out new things. They were excellent cooks. We had a fusion, you know, we had Cuban some nights, we'd have Russian other nights if Nina was cooking, we'd have Italian some nights. It was it was very nice food. So food wasn't in short supply, is that what you're saying? 
No, and this this yeah, this is often something that people will say about about Cuba, particularly from a tourist perspective. They'll say, "Oh, the food is bland or um, doesn't taste nice." And some people, like you said, will will go to the extreme and say that you won't be able to get enough food some days, or some days you won't be able to have breakfast. That last point isn't true. I mean, it just isn't true. There's always a way to get something. Um, even if it's not what you were expecting, you will you will have something on the table in Cuba, irrespective of where you are. In terms of the food, the food quality, you know, it is hit and miss. I guess like any place, some restaurants are really nice, others less so. In my personal experience, it's no, it's worse than any other place. I mean, you know, you always have your serving of beans and rice, which has been stewed in some sort of beef stock. Um, you'll always have either pork or fish or chicken with that. So, you know, I, I certainly don't get the impression that it's that the food there is bland. Um, maybe not as not as diverse as we're used to here in Australia, but you know, certainly certainly nice food. Well, we're very spoiled here. You have to admit that. Mm. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done By Law. 6pm Tuesdays. Next Sunday, the 31st of May, commemorates the 10th anniversary of the Gaza Flotilla Raid, a military operation by the Israelis against six civilian ships of the Gaza Freedom Flotilla in international waters in the Mediterranean Sea. Today I'm speaking with James Godfrey from the Gaza Freedom Flotilla Australia and I asked James first what happened on that day on the Mediterranean Sea. There were a number of international boats which were sailing towards Gaza to deliver humanitarian aid and love to the Palestinian people in Gaza. They were led by the uh, IHH boat, the Mavi Marmarit, a Turkish aid, human rights and aid organisation. There was a large vessel. They were sailing there, and they were in international waters. They had a, a large amount of, uh, of aid on board, including cement and wheelchairs and medical supplies and communications equipment and toys, all sorts of things to, to give to our friends in, in Gaza. They, they've been told by the Israeli government, the authorities, that they must uh, turn back. They weren't allowed to proceed into Gaza. The people on board the boats had already discussed and decided that uh, this was, would, would be an illegal demand, that they should stop, and that they had a right, a right and freedom of innocent passage. And uh, they would sail to Gaza, so they sailed on. And then uh, in the middle of the night, the communication systems were cut. The boats were attacked. And what happened to the passengers on the, those ships? The, on the lead ship, as I said, the Mavi Marmara, the uh, Israeli military attacked with uh, helicopters and they uh, dropped soldiers onto the boat. They began firing at people when they were rappelling down onto the decks of onto the deck of the bay. Killed ten people, executed, extrajudicial murder on board. Nearly sixty people were wounded. All of the other boats were attacked, boarded. Boats and all the people were detained. They were tied. Their communications equipment was 
stolen from people. Very minimal evidence was able to be extracted from the uh, to res rescued from the attack. But fortunately, some equipment was able to be stored, and so some of the stories are able to be told, and they're captured in uh, particularly a, a recent film, The True Lost at Sea. James, to understand why the six flotilla ships were trying to bring aid to Gaza, we need to go back a further three years to 2007, and that's the blockade of Gaza by Israel and Egypt. Why did they blockade it? Well, there was an election took place, as, you, as your listeners would be aware. Several of the international governments weren't happy with the outcome of the election. But a political group, Hamas, won the elections, and uh, as a result of, of that, the Israeli government decided it was going to step up its blockade and impose severe sanctions against the people in particular in Gaza. So there had been no... No sea movements, no maritime arrivals in Port of Gaza actually since 1967. But uh, from 2007 onwards, after the elections, well, late 2006 uh, and then 2007, the, the blockade increased and it became far more severe uh, on sea, land and in, and in the air. Freedom of movement was prevented and only minimal exceptions. And so with that happening... It, was, it seemed imperative to people in the international community to try and break the blockade. And uh, the precursor to our organisation, the, the Free Gaza Movement, set about failing to uh, take to love and to take the minimal supplies into, into Gaza and to open up maritime ports. Simultaneously, there, was a, there were land convoys which were organised, some of which were successful as well, which attempted to go across the uh, crossing in Egypt into Gaza too. But uh, Gaza is occupied by the Israeli government. It's not occupied by the Egyptian government. And although the Egyptian government maintains or prevents freedom of movement through the crossing, it's, uh, Gaza is in uh, occupied territory of the Israeli government. So the, the primary issue we have is with the Israeli government, which occupies Gaza. So what you're saying is that there were a number of boats going to try and get through to Gaza over that before 2010, and also online. What happened after 2010? Was a decision made that they wouldn't try it again or what happened? Rewinding, there were five successful missions to sail into the port of Gaza which were reached in 2008 um, organised by the Free Gaza Movement and uh, the boats arrived with some joy very joyous pictures and videos which are available on uh, via Al Jazeera, you can spot some of those um, of the of the scenes there, but uh, after the boats were attacked in 2010 and all the people were killed and wounded and provisions were stolen, siege of Gaza hasn't hadn't been ended. So uh, people met together and go, how how best can we continue? So it was decided to form an international coalition of groups to try and coordinate um, on an ongoing basis the attempts to challenge the blockade. And so the Freedom Flotilla Coalition was formed in late 2010 different partner organisations and member groups from around the world in a loose coalition gathered together and began planning, planning missions to uh, continue to challenge the blockade by maritime methods, to try and break the maritime blockade. We've organised many missions since then, some of them um, more furtive than others as a result of trying to ensure we could leave safely from particular ports in the Mediterranean and to try and be um, under the radar, let's say. 
um, but most of the missions have been extremely public ones, and we've been traveling around Europe, through the Mediterranean, sometimes through Europe, even through canals, trying to gain public support along the way to uh, expose the role of various governments throughout Europe in particular and the way in which they've been supportive and complicit in the ongoing blockade and the uh, collect illegal collective punishment of the Palestinian people in Gaza, two, two million people in Gaza roughly, and uh, half of whom are children. And there are groups in many countries around the world, aren't there? Yeah, we've got within the Freedom Flotilla Coalition, so we have North American partners in Canada and the United States, with partners in uh, Malaysia, in Europe, in France, Italy and Spain, and Norway and Sweden, and then in South Africa, in Aotearoa, New Zealand, and here in Australia. Groups from many parts of the world uh, have come together, and there are other individuals and smaller organisations who don't take a formal part in our planning processes, but uh, raise awareness and funds as well for our, our projects, because it's an expensive project to come buy boats and kit them out safely and securely, and uh, travel around Europe and across to, uh, to try and break the illegal blockade in Gaza. Your land-based organising, what is your role? There's not enough room on board for everyone to, uh, to be sailing to Gaza, and some people have more sea legs than others, let's say, and we all have can contribute in our own different ways to uh, any particular activities and campaigning. So most of the people involved are land-based people. One of my roles is working with the media and also working with outreach and campaigning. So as we prepare for our various freedom flotillas, we host a number of public meetings and awareness raising of what we do, uh, see what our plans are, what we've succeeded in the past to do, explain to people the current situation in Gaza, the way in which the population live and survive and eke out an existence and resist in spite of the, the appalling conditions which they are subjected to as a result of the occupation and the blockade in relation to the, the lack of water, the lack of power, the total control which the Israeli occupation has over their freedom of movement, their calorific intake, their inability to export, all of the controls, constraints upon their lives. So giving that at that, but then also indicating that we're not a charitable organisation. And in fact, as one, one Palestinian, prominent Palestinian person said to me, couple of years ago, James, what you do uh, is not actually an act of solidarity. And it's something which for many years I've been, hold on, we, we, we do solidarity, not charity. But they said, no, when you take your boats and your bodies, you send them to confront the Israeli occupation forces and their navy, you've now become part of the struggle. It's that which, is that message that we are doing things in a different way not simply charity, not simply solidarity, but now we're part of the struggle. But of course, we sail with international passports, not me personally, but the people on board, and with the, with the privilege in nearly all the cases of having international governments, which will, to some extent or another, stand up for people's rights uh, to be returned if they're detained by the Israelis unlawfully to their countries of... Um, of residents, although people are, are often 
mistreated, attacked, assaulted, tasered, handcuffed, beaten, threatened execution, all these sorts of things on board our boats from time to time. These are generally people have survived these attacks when we're assaulted in international waters and people do return home safely, as opposed to our Palestinian sisters and brothers who go out the waters in the Mediterranean to carry out the fishing for their livelihood, and they're routinely attacked with, with either water cannon, with live ammunition, often ordered to strip naked and jump into the waters, abandon their boats, and often they're detained for long periods of time and or shot. We, we travel with enormous privilege and part of my job is to explain some of these human stories of day-to-day uh, -day life and resistance of uh, our partners in Gaza. But many, many of the people who work with uh, our kids as well, we work with a group called We Are Not Numbers and they are a group of story writers, young people generally in Gaza and to humanise the, the people of Gaza. They're normal people, everyday people and part of the mission of the world is always to, to, to demonize and dehumanize. And so a significant part of our job is to humanize. So the work which I do with our, our partners there, whether it be Asma or Raed or Farah, at We Are Not Numbers, and sharing stories as to what kids are doing, what they're playing, what they're eating, what uh, their parents are doing, what, <laughs> what farmers are doing. It's those sorts of human stories. But we're also raising so we're raising awareness, we're raising funds. In, in our, our next project, which we're doing, which we've partnered with a group called, called the Gaza Surf Project. And so we're going to be transporting a token amount of surf lifesaving equipment to assist in the development of the, the local surf lifesaving club in the port of Gaza. Just listening to you talking about the deprivation that the Palestinians suffer because of the blockade, I can remember a couple of years ago, I interviewed a captain on one of the ships that year and she said as they were sailing along the Israeli coast heading toward Gaza, they knew when they got to the coast because when they were travelling mm. along Israel there were bright lights and everything was lit up and they got to the border of Gaza and it was dark. There was no lights. One of the things to remember is there is no border. Gaza's occupied, so there is no border. The, the Israelis control the area, so the border indicates that it's a separate international entity, and it's not. It's controlled by the Israeli state, Gaza. So it's a security fence, and remembering, of course, that the vast majority of Palestinian people in Gaza are refugees. They just want to go home. So there's no border there. It's a security fence and a blockade which is in place. But the, uh, the gross differences there are between the inequality there is between life on one side of the so-called security fence and the other are astounding. In many parts of the world you have places where you go, well, this is a, a natural disaster, This is people are living a long way away from natural resources or from the ability to have things that can sustain their life. But uh, there you have, as, as, as you mentioned, the very close, so proximate together the bright light on one side of the security fence and just next door almost no power at all, it's just darkness. So this is a human-made catastrophe, human-made catastrophe which is uh, ongoing and is fixable by humans. Seeing that stark difference, and even when we sail our boats 
as well through the, or close towards the, uh, the gas fields which are being mined by the Israeli government, Israeli corporations, international mining explorations and mining, co- mining companies. You sense there's an enormous amount of wealth which should stay in the soil and should be, uh, the Palestinian people should be allowed to keep in the soil and be compensated to keep this, uh, these fossil fuel producing uh, energies in the ground, but instead they're being uh, extracted and used in order not just to fund the Israeli government and its ongoing illegal occupation, but also to, to turbocharge the destruction of our climate. On Sunday, there's the film, The Truth, Lost at Sea. Who were those who put this film together? Sunday the 31st of May, which is the 10th anniversary of the attack by the Israeli soldiers onto the, of the Mavi Mamra and the Freedom Flotilla, will be showing the, the Truth, Lost at Sea. And uh, Rifat Alday, a filmmaker, was on board the Mavi Mamra and was able to retrieve some incredible footage of what was happening aboard the Mavi Marmara as people sailed with hope, with optimism, with love, and in companionship with each other towards Gaza. And he's able to was able to put together a film of life on board the boat and then of many of the things that happened when the boat was attacked in international waters prior to it being boarded by the uh, Israeli soldiers and then after it was boarded and what was happening during those many minutes and hours after they were attacked and those many people being injured and people caring for people and doing their best to survive and stand together and stay strong in the face of an armed attack by uh, masked soldiers. So the film will be showing on the 31st of May at 4pm Australian Eastern Standard Time, and there's a Q&A session with uh, the filmmaker, uh, Rifat, who was on board the boat, and uh, Samar Sabawi, the Palestinian-Canadian-Australian uh, playwright, is joining us on the panel as well to field questions. So there'll be people talking about what happened on board the boat, as well as what's going to be hap- what's happening in Gaza at the moment, and more generally in the rest of Palestine and also our plans for the next Freedom to Telephone to Gaza as soon as safely possible. How do people access the screening? The, the best thing to do is if people go to our, uh, our, our Facebook page, it's probably as easy as anything. So if people go to Gaza Australia on Facebook, they'll find it there, or us on, uh, on Twitter, they'll find us at uh, GFF Group, G-F-F-A-U-S-G-R-O-U-P. That's Gaza Freedom, Freedom Flotilla. Or else if you look up on the, uh, into any of your search engines, Freedom Flotilla Coalition, you'll find it. Or else you could look up Samartha Bawi on, uh, on Twitter as well. She's one of the attendees. They'll need to register. There's only limited capacity. So please get on board the Facebook and you can register there. The event, we look forward to seeing a, a packed house. We'll try and record the Q&A and, and pop it up later. And if people can't make it for some reason, then the film's available to the rental buy and the link to that as well is on our, on our Facebook page so people will find it there or else they can go and look up The Truth Lost at Sea and it has its own website which would in turn will take people to a link to, to rent or buy the film to share the story because as the communication systems are cut every time we try and break the illegal blockade in, in the Mediterranean Sea 
we know we're about to be attacked because uh, the truth is then lost at sea. It's so important that the stories and the memories and whatever visuals we can we have of these attacks are shared so that the narrative is not taken away from the people who experienced what, what went on. And it's so much in line with what Palestinian people have who are attacked on the waters in the Mediterranean, whose stories are so seldom captured and, and told. It's the reason why we're, we're so proud to, to do what we do and to continue what we're doing. And next mission is focused on the children of Gaza. It's called Gaza Kids for the children of Gaza. We're looking forward to shedding even more light on the conditions which Palestinian kids have in Gaza who have been living for nearly all of them their whole life under a blockade and uh, unable to have freedom of movement with constant drones whirring over their head and subject to multiple massive military assaults periodically. Thank you, James. That's okay. It's an absolute pleasure to talk with you and uh, be, on, be on your show, which has been running for so many years. Thank you so much. Thank you. And my guest was James Godfrey from the Gaza Freedom Flotilla Australia. To help stop the spread of viruses like flu and coronavirus, good hygiene is essential. That starts with washing your hands with soap and water for at least 20 seconds. Whenever you cough, sneeze or blow your nose, prepare food or eat, care for someone sick, touch your face or use the toilet. Together, we can help stop the spread and stay healthy. Visit health.gov.au to learn more. Authorised by the Australian Government, Canberra. A 3CR supporter. Hi, I'm Michelle Briere, Mani Dubonese, Ojibwe from Canada. And I am Shakti Hayes from the Cree Nation, Canada. And you're listening to 3CR. Community Radio. And we love and support Community Radio. Why? Because it speaks the truth. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. On the program last week, Dave Kerrin, lifetime trade unionist, talked about the BLF Union Green Bands in New South Wales and Victoria in the 1970s and the legacy today of the late Jack Mundy, who died recently, aged 90. Now to Joan Coxedge and her involvement with the New South Wales and Victorian BLF in their green bands. During my drawing years, because I'd been an artist for God knows how long, I got into the habit of calling into the builders' labourers to photocopy catalogues and other bits and pieces associated with my art because I was broke, I couldn't afford to do it professionally. And I'm very kind because... And many of the drawings depicted beautiful old buildings and streetscapes that were threatened by the developers. And at that time, you entered the Union from Victoria Street and you went downstairs in the bowels of the Trades Hall. And that's how I got to know Pat George, Normie Gallagher's secretary. And she was really a supportive person. And that was also when we found we had a common concern about the architectural murder of our city. 
And few Victorians probably know that in Collins Street, one's called the Paris End, we used to have great hotels like the Oriental and the Occidental, which had curbside tables under large umbrellas long before Ligon Street. Sadly, they disappeared in a cloud of dust and rubble. Then there was the disgraceful destruction of the fabulous Federal Hotel that used to sit on the corner of Collins and King Streets at the non-Paris end of Collins Street. And late on a Friday afternoon, I drew part of it, intending to return on the Monday to draw it from a different angle. But when I returned, I was shocked to see the bulldozers had beat me to it. And in 1974, after talking with Norm, Pat asked if I would like to be officially commissioned to draw the Union's Green Bands buildings around Australia. I said, absolutely, love to. Minimum price for each drawing with my airfares and accommodation thrown in. And it was a wonderful opportunity to compare architectural styles between the various cities and a wonderful opportunity to walk into a minefield of internecine Union warfare, which, of course, I didn't know about at the time. And the Green Bands campaign was a world first, a brilliant idea that saw a militant trade union and a small community join hands to protect the environment at a time when people were getting fed up to the back teeth with the destruction of our early buildings. In 1972 in Melbourne, community representatives approached the builders' labourers for support after a patch of ground in Carlton set aside for a children's playground was snatched for a factory, an action that kicked off the campaign a fraction earlier than Sydney, although there is some dispute over that. And the Green Bands quickly expanded to encompass old theatres, pubs and banks, terrace houses, the Victoria Market and scores of other sites around Australia. And there is absolutely no doubt that Jack Mundy, articulate and extremely personable, was totally dedicated to protecting historic parts of Sydney and he gave the Green Bands a much higher profile and he will be very sadly missed. And I started with Melbourne because many buildings were back on the developer's agenda and I don't use a pencil, I go straight in with my pen, usually a very, in a very, using a very fine line, particularly tricky when try, you're trying to cope with busy streets full of trams and cars and smelly buses and heaps and heaps of people and the region theatre was a very tough draw. I was eventually forced to climb up a steep stone structure in front of the Baptist church to get a decent perspective, much to the surprise of the lunchtime crowd. Hobart was charming and peaceful and freezing. Rugged to the gills, I drew the picturesque Arthur Circus and Salamanca Place. Brisbane, in Joe Bielke-Peterson land, was the direct opposite. Stinking hot, with a decidedly nasty feel about the place. And I think just about all the fine old buildings I drew were bulldozed soon after. And corruption, you, you could just taste it. You could taste it in the air there. It was so rotten. And then there was Sydney. Sydney was different again, full of energy and fireworks and passion. Joe Owens met me at the airport. He had taken over as State Secretary from Jack Mundy because the, this was a rank-and-file union with a new left agenda. Limited tenure for officials, it went down like a lead balloon with all the other unions, you can imagine. And I sat behind Joe on his motor scooter 
and we did a grand tour of Green Band sites while he described the local scene and the schisms developing inside the federal body. Politically, you're a bit luckier in Victoria with Premier Hamer. We've got a bloke who's as crooked as a dog's hind leg. This was from Joe. And, but the piece de resistance was Victoria Street King's Cross, which was like walking into a war zone. Corrupt developers versus local residents, radical students and the New South Wales builders' labourers, who were fighting like hell to keep the street open for the wharfies, workers in the bars and brothels at King's Cross. The battlers, and characters without a brass razoo. Normally a pleasant street of trees and old terrace houses, one side was now an armed camp, sealed off from the public with high wire fences, giant dogs, and tough-looking men, and that was my brief. And I thought, oh, my God, what am I walking into? Well, the National Trust put the street on its classified list, but that didn't stop the thugs and the hoons from moving in. And the 300 tenants were given eviction notice and seven days to clear out. Half stayed put and were then offered money and threatened with swift physical relocation to the footpath if they refused. To bring the point home, locks and wrought iron fixtures were removed, doors were kicked down and bricks thrown through the windows at night. Everything possible to put the fear of God up residence and make the houses virtually unlivable. And despite all the pressure, a group of hardy souls sat tight, organising patrols to keep out the vandals and even giving themselves the title, the Victoria Street Action Group. Arthur King from number 97 led the push. But in April, Mr King was abducted. He spent three days blindfolded, locked in a car boot with a rope around his neck and threatened he would drown in his own blood. Arthur got the message. He returned to number 97, packed his bags and shot through. Dozens more were forcibly evicted during the siege of Victoria Street. Tenants who were arrested were made to sign an undertaking. They would not return before being let out of jail. But Seaman Mick Fowler ignored the warnings and went back to his Victoria Street house only to find all his belongings had been tossed into the gutter. A few dozen builders' labourers escorted Mick back to his home, forcibly hoofing out three security hoons, and that's when I came in. And as the people's enemies were about to become my enemies, I thought it advisable to find out who they were. Frank Tiemann's name loomed large. Tiemann had made a mint from selling women's undies, and made even more when he sold his Osti holdings to Dunlop before turning to development. He planned to bulldoze the terraces in Victoria Street and replace them with an ugly Victoria Rise project. That is, until he met his Green Bands Waterloo, a delay costing him a small fortune. Tiemann had a team of thugs to assist him, thugs with connections to corrupt politicians and police. The Bourbon and Beefsteak Bar in the Cross, then run by Bernie Houghton of Nugan Hand Infamy, was said to be a favourite watering hole. Tiemann approached Joe Meissner, a vicious fixer jailed for stealing submachine guns from an army depot as his security consultant. Meissner used bruises from his karate school to beat up and evict anyone daring to stay put. Tiemann also had a former head of the New South Wales Special Breaking Squad, the notorious Detective Sergeant Fred Cray in his pocket. Local brothel Madam Shirley Brithman 
had fingered Freddie as the policeman in charge of the rackets, naming 33 other coppers involved in bank robberies and receiving stolen goods, all of them working in cahoots with professional crims. An investigation was started, but came to a screeching halt when Brithman turned up as a corpse. Suicide, said the cops. Like hell, said Joe Owens. In 1972, Cray became too hot for his police chief pals and was retired early as medically unfit, which didn't stop him joining Meister during the battles of Victoria Street. Well, Sydney was beginning to sound like a mini Chicago with the mob in control to me, and the scandals and corruption went right to the top. To the person of Premier, if you remember, run the bastards over Askin and his hand-picked cronies and back down through the ranks of crooked cops, sly groggers, casino bosses and anyone out to make a dollar. You could even buy a knighthood from Askin if you had $60,000 in your kit. Under his guidance, New South Wales became the place to do business if you were an overseas gangster or member of the local mafia when billions of dollars were channeled through some of the most, in inverted commas, respectable corporate structures and leading businessmen. For all I know, it could still be going on. Well, next morning, I squatted on the footpath in Victoria Street as far away from the action as possible with mucking up my view. And at night, I joined the builders' labourers in their pub in inner Sydney, but they were way out of my puny class. Not exactly a two-pot screamer. I know my limitations. Unfortunately, I indulged slightly over the limit and paid the price. Drawing the beautiful rocks area the following day had me stumbling down incredibly steep steps looking for a vacant patch of land in which to throw up. By lunchtime, I was okay, vowing to hit the water wagon forever. During the course of the week, I kept hearing about a gutsy female crusader, Juanita Nilsson, the 38-year-old heiress to the Mark Foy fortune. Nilsson had put out a small fortnightly newspaper called Now from her Victoria Street home as part of her fight against the team and development. But in July 1975, she simply disappeared. She was last seen exiting from the Carousel Cabaret in King's Cross, also known as Lay Girl, run by Abe Saffron and Jim Anderson, two charmers you wouldn't want to come across on a dark night. Saffron, Sydney's Mr. Sin, owned a string of nightclubs and was a big player in organised crime, along with Fred Cray and Leonard McPherson, Sydney's underworld supremo. Some years later, I caught up with Tony Reeves in Sydney, Tony was an old friend who had worked as a press officer for Lionel Murphy when he was Attorney General and had moved on to become the Sydney City Council Alderman. A journo pal, Barry Ward, joined us for lunch at a Lebanese restaurant in Newtown and the pair had been delving into Nielsen's disappearance and had written an account of her last days, which was so shocking I instantly lost my taste for Lebanese food. Juanita had been lured to a King's Cross motel and taken upstairs to a room where three men were waiting, they said. Tony and Barry reckoned her body had been dismembered and fed into the commercial garbage disposal unit in the motel kitchen. Good God Almighty, surely not, I said. They dared do this to a prominent woman whose father was a millionaire? Something terrible happened, said Tony. 
Cray had a contract to murder Nielsen, was either present when she was killed or organised others to do the job, some of whom were later bumped off in underworld-style executions. Not surprisingly, Barry didn't feel safe and was getting out of the country altogether, which seemed fairly reasonable to me. We finished our meal a hell of a lot quicker than we had intended after the restaurant owner raced over to our table. There's a police car parked out the front just sitting there, he said. We took off like rockets. In 1978, Cray was charged with conspiracy to defraud the Nugenhan Bank, an obscure Sydney-based institution that came to occupy a central position of a vast network of drug transactions, fraud, secret arms deals and covert intelligence operations, but was eventually discharged on all counts and died in 1981. Eight years after her disappearance, the inquest on Juanita Nielsen took place in the Glebe Court in August 1983, the longest in New South Wales legal history. Her body was never found. Anything after that had to be an anti-climax, and was. Adelaide is a lovely city, but was very quiet, more like a large country town in some ways. The local BLs had slept on three bands, a group of shops in Unlit to stop an eight-storey block of flats, a bicycle velodrome in Norwood to prevent another group of high-rise flats, and a vacant paddock at Highbury Park to keep out a supermarket. The shops were a breeze, but making an empty plot of land look interesting took all my ingenuity. I concentrated on some shrubbery in the foreground of the distant hills. And that was that. Job completed, but something that I will never, ever forget. Joan, what has happened to those paintings' drawings? Displayed in a special gallery next to Norm's old federal office. And the exhibition was formally opened by Rodney Davidson, the rather toffee head of the National Trust, definitely from the opposite end of the political spectrum to Norm, and with fundamental differences in class and style. But they seemed to get on like a house on fire. Prints were made from eight of the drawings and were very popular. Their sale would more than covered the cost of my artistic forays. The gallery remained open until the Victorian branch of the Builders Labourers Federation was shut down by the Cane Labour Government in 1987 and the office and all its contents secured by police and taken over by a custodian. But I know where they are in the CFMEU offices and I think they've been treated with tender loving care because they are, they are, after all, a small part of our labour history. And thank you, Norm, and thank you, Jack Mundy, and thank you, Pat George. I've been speaking with Joan Coxidge, activist and artist, about the Green Bands back in the 1970s. Victoria Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter. 
It's been described as a cocktail of valid criticisms, disinformation and defeatism. And it's not just bad, it's old bad. A reheated mess of lazy old myths. It takes a harsh look at how the environmental movement has lost the battle through well-meaning but disastrous choices. Planet of the Humans, a new documentary about climate and environmental politics, directed by Jeff Gibbs and produced by Gibbs and Ozzie Saher, author of Green Issues, The Dirty Secret of Clean Energy and the Future of Environmentalism. Another critic of the documentary is Mark Diesendorf. He's an Australian academic and environmentalist known for his work in sustainable development and renewable energy and is Honorary Associate Professor in the Environment and Governments Group in the School of Humanities and Language of UNSW. He currently teaches environmental studies at the University of New South Wales. He's a former professor of environmental science and founding director of the Institute for Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology, Sydney. And before that, a principal research scientist with CSIRO, where he was involved in early research on integrating wind power into electricity grids. His most recent book is Sustainable Energy Solutions for Climate Change. Mark, before you talk about the documentary, did alarm bells begin to ring with you when you saw who was the director and the producer? No, they didn't, because I'm a great admirer of Michael Moore's films and his work generally. So the shock came when I realised what it was saying. And I'd never heard of the person who actually wrote and directed and co-produced the film, Jeff Gibbs. So he was a complete unknown to me. He's not a well-known environmentalist, although he called himself an environmentalist. Is there any ideas that Michael Moore has changed all his views or just on this issue? Has he been interviewed, do you know? I don't know, but I've seen it written that Jeff Gibbs and Michael Moore have been working together on other projects for a long time. So they're probably friends. Michael Moore has lent his name to the film as executive producer, but an executive producer doesn't necessarily have much involvement in the film. So I would prefer to call it the Jeff Gibbs film, but sadly, Michael Moore lent his name to it. And that's encouraged so many people to watch it. Yes, it has. And unfortunately, they've been exposed to a lot of material about renewable energy, which is out of date, is superficial, simplistic, misleading, and in some cases, outright wrong. Can you give us some examples of what you believe they've put in there that that is all those things that you just said? You say the bias is appalling. It is appallingly biased. So, for example, Jeff Gibbs has interviewed fossil fuel supporters for their views on renewable energy. They're hardly likely to be supporters, even if they are installing a tiny solar plant. Their main business is or was uh, fossil fuel electricity. So the bias in the interviews was very strong. Some of the arguments were just ridiculous things that have been refuted for, you know, for 10 years. So the claim that because an electricity grid with renewables based on wind and solar has 
variable output. The claim is that you'll all, we'll always need fossil fuel backup. Well, that's been refuted, as I said, for over a decade by numerous studies, both computer simulations and practical experience, because we now have some electricity grids around the world and, and in South Australia, where from time to time they are running entirely on renewables without any fossil fuels operating. There may be some fossil fuel backup, but that fossil fuel backup that isn't operating is gradually being retired. In the near future, uh, we will have 100% renewable energy systems, electricity systems, uh, even without large amounts of hydroelectric storage. So that's one example. Another really false argument is that an industry, for example, that uh, has claimed that it is using 100% renewable electricity, the claim is that if they're connected to the grid, they're not using 100% renewable electricity. Well, that's simply wrong. A number of major industries collect some of their 100% renewable electricity off rooftops, but they get the rest by buying electricity from wind farms and solar farms, and that comes through the grid. And the fact that the grid also carries fossil fuels is really irrelevant in terms of the companies' purchases of renewable electricity, they are buying 100% renewables. We've got all these misleading arguments running. I guess also a lot of the material is so out of date. So if, for example, Gibbs interviewed someone who was installing solar panels from a fossil fuel company, claiming that the efficiency of conversion was 8%. Well, it's decades since Good solar panels had efficiencies of 8%. Uh, my panels have efficiencies of 20%. 8% versus 20%. 20% is, is the norm now if you buy a, a good panel, which isn't a cheap panel. So, again, misleading information. They typified the electric car by a car called the Chevy Volt. That was introduced and superseded 10 years ago. Very misleading, simplistic stuff. How do you believe they thought they were going to go get away with this? Because, as you say, it is so out of date and misleading. I think they thought that with Michael Moore's support that they would have a lot of people who just lapped it up because it was Michael Moore. If I wasn't working in the field of renewable energy, if I wasn't well informed about it, I would be confused by the film and I might actually believe some of the false and misleading claims about renewable energy. And in fact, the film has got a lot of positive likes on YouTube from people who don't know any better. That's really sad because the truth is that renewable energy is growing very rapidly around the world, not in every country or state, but in some places extremely rapidly. Annual investment in renewable electricity, globally speaking, now is double the total annual investment in fossil fuel and nuclear electricity put together. Renewable energy is a success story, and it's a success because it's cheaper than new fossil fuels or renewable or, or um, nuclear power. It has very low carbon emissions, zero emissions during operation, and its life cycle emissions from mining and processing the raw materials and building the plants 
are actually relatively low compared with their energy outputs over their lifetimes. A success story is now being painted as a failure, quite falsely, and that's very distressing. You wouldn't be surprised if, if the true backers of this documentary was the fossil fuel industry? The fossil fuel industry is clearly delighted by this film because they've been using it in their propaganda. I don't believe that the fossil fuel industry invested in this film. I suspect that Jeff Gibbs made these misleading and false points because it makes a better film. It's more impressive to make these extreme claims and that would appeal to Michael Moore also. But I think Michael Moore has made a very big mistake in uh, giving his name to this film. Nevertheless, are there issues in this film that you do agree with? There is one sentence in the film that is spot on. You can't have continual growth in consumption and in population on a finite planet. We have to move to a steady state economy. There was just one sentence there that is spot on, but even that created the false impression because the film was basically saying the issue isn't getting the right technologies, it's dealing with endless growth on a finite planet. And I would argue, and in my writings, I argue that we need to deal with both. The fastest way of dealing with climate change is to change technologies from fossil fuels to renewable energy and energy efficiency. But at the same time, we have to find a way to transition to a, a socio-economic system that is based on steady-state conditions with, with no growth, no total growth in the use of energy or materials or land or in population. We must make that transition as well, but it's not either or. We must do both. And how far down that path do you believe we are at the moment? Not very far at all. There is a group that I belong to called the Centre for the Advancement of the Steady State Economy and it is really growing public awareness about the need to transition to what we call a steady state economy, one that doesn't have growth in energy materials, land and population and which has a low throughput, lower use. So awareness is growing slowly and there is a new interdisciplinary field of research called ecological economics which is also developing the theoretical understandings for how we could actually operate an economy which is not endlessly growing. Progress is being made there. Some very valuable knowledge is being generated showing that, in fact, if we do it the right way, it is possible to have an, a national economy, for a start, that isn't growing, doesn't have a huge amount of unemployment. I mean, if you simply stop economic growth, many, many people are thrown out of work. <clears throat> and we can see this right now with the COVID-19 situation. Economic growth has stopped in Australia and in other countries. Thousands are out of work. But if you do it in a strategic way, sharing the existing work around, putting more emphasis on local industries, on local manufacture, rather than importing a lot of stuff, it is possible to have an economy which is steady state and still provides employment and income for its people. But it's not easy to do. It won't happen automatically. And that's why ecological economics and the broader movement 
for a steady state economy are very important. It is also important to discuss population growth because population, along with consumption and dirty technology, is one of the drivers of environmental destruction. So you aren't one of those who maintain that capitalism is the problem with endless growth and consumption? I certainly think that endless growth and consumption is a key problem for the environment on this planet and for society as a whole. Capitalism as it is currently practised in many countries is one of the main drivers of that situation. There is a debate about whether or not we can modify capitalism or control it to make it a more, more of a, a social economy or whether we have to throw out capitalism altogether. I must admit I'm rather sceptical about total state control of the economy, but I, I do believe that some things should be state-owned. Some basic infrastructure and some key industries should indeed be state-owned. So I guess my current thinking is a bit between that the existing form of extreme capitalism that we see in the United States and we ape to some degree in Australia is one of the key problems. But it is unclear to me at this stage whether we need to throw out capitalism or markets entirely or rather keep a tightly controlled system of markets because markets can be guided in different ways and markets in the existing system are basically set up in a way to assist large corporations to exist and do business and it is entirely possible for us to modify markets to control them in a way that provides much better environmental protection and social justice. Finally, Mark, if you were writing a note to Michael Moore about your thoughts about this film, this documentary, what would you say to him? I would first say that almost everything in the film about renewable energy is either uh, misleading or wrong, simply wrong, or um, just cherry-picking bad examples that are not typical of, of the true situation. And that's a pity because you've been one of my heroes, Michael. I have enjoyed most of your previous films and, and videos, and I agree with uh, most of what you say in them. And so I think you've made a bad mistake, but obviously you are strongly committed to Jeff Gibbs and the film, so I, I can hardly expect to talk you out of it. Is there anything else you'd like to add? A final word is that the one positive thing in the film, the single sentence, to the extent that we can't have infinite growth on a finite planet, fine, but really more of the film should have explained that in much more detail. It was a throwaway line. Half the film should have developed that theme and done it properly and in depth. And just having a throwaway line like that sounds nice, but it isn't really going to convince anyone. And yet there is a growing body of material, of research, of education material that goes in depth in how we can start to make a transition to a steady state economy. Your film, Michael Moore, fails to explain that. Thank you, Mark. Okay. I've been speaking with Mark Diesendorf. Australian academic and environmentalist about a new documentary, Planet as Humans. 
exhibiting 300 artworks by 286 Indigenous artists currently in or recently released from prison in Victoria, Confined 11 serves as a strong visual metaphor for the over-representation of First Nations Australians in the criminal justice system. This year, The Torch presents the annual Confined exhibition online at thetorch.org.au. All artworks are for sale and 100% of the sale price goes directly to the artist. Help us paint a brighter future. Head to thetorch.org.au from May the 14th to explore Confined 11. A 3CR supporter. You could be anything of everything, but I most of all be yourself. In recent weeks, concerns were growing that under the cover of the COVID-19 virus, governments around the world, including Australia, are introducing new powers and laws that curtail civil liberties and are typically a one-way street. And these include new extraordinary powers being given to police to enforce unprecedented lockdown, closing businesses, banning gatherings and restricting when people can be outside their homes. We're told that these powers are time-limited but can be extended. Even though police commissioners around the country have stated that discretion will be used in issuing fines, and enforcing directions, but the nature of the legislation means that these remain confusing. Legal services and human rights advocates, together with others, are acting to support the community in this time of unprecedented police powers. I spoke with Sophie Lestrange from the Fitzroy Legal Service and asked her first, who are the organisations working together in Victoria on this COVID-19 police plan? It was a collective idea from a collaboration between the public interest team and the criminal law team. And we're also a partner to the COVID policing website and in discussions about how best we could support the website through our partnership, we thought the great thing that we could do was provide phone information and phone advice to people who've been charged under the pandemic. And this is an Australian-wide service, is it? No, so our phone line is just for Victoria. Just because each state differs so greatly in what laws are being enforced around the pandemic that it would be quite a task for one phone line to be able to service all states. So our, our service is just for people who have been charged under Victorian laws or fined under Victorian laws. How did you let people know that you had this service? Uh, we've been letting people know that we have the service through a few different avenues. We've, been, we've created a poster that we've sent out to uh, other community service organisations that we partner with. Uh, to share with their clients and service users and on their own websites. We've been pumping it through our social media and our personal website and also we're listed on the COVID policing website under the uh, legal advice and legal help page. And who were the people that you were targeting? What issues would they have had? We're looking to, to help people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged under the COVID policing laws in Victoria and we don't have any restrictions on where, what suburb those people live in or what particular circumstances are taking place when they're charged. We're trying to keep it as broad as possible so as many people in Victoria can talk to us and to, can get some information or some help. And what response have you had? We've had a steady response, probably around, around five or so calls a week from people who have been charged or fined under the laws. 
a lot of people coming to us with confusion about what the laws were and what they what they did wrong, uh, confusion about how to best challenge the fine and the response has been the response has been positive. We are seeing though with the easing of restrictions in Victoria that the calls coming through are getting less. We think that's that's because of a few things. The police being told from the higher ups to seek approve, approval before getting fined, but also just what people can get fined for is reducing each week. And what were people telling you or telling the, the group about their interaction with the police? What happened to them? A lot of people have been reporting to us that they felt intimidated by the police, that they felt that the police were being heavy-handed or rude to them, and a lot of people just um, expressing confusion about what rules they had broken and the confusion in the police responses to their questions around what specifically they had done wrong. Can you give a couple of examples? We've had people who have been going for a walk and needed to take a break, sitting down on a park bench and being approached by police and that was, as they report in a quite intimidating and aggressive way and being fined. And in that instance, you know, they're, they're asking the police, you know, why? What have we done wrong? We really needed to take a break. This person has a health condition. And feeling quite confused and disrespected by the police response and insistence to, fly, to find them nonetheless in that circumstance. Did you find that certain groups were being targeted by the police? Through our phone line, we haven't had any clear targeting of people, but we are seeing some trends of people who are experiencing mental health problems or people who are um, drug users or are experiencing homelessness are tending to contact us for help and assistance with COVID-19 fines. But what we really need is the Victoria Police to release the data, the identified data on all the stops and all of the fines that they've been giving out so that we can accurately see what groups are being targeted, if any, and what trends there are in that data. But our, our data pool is, is too small to make any broad comments on, on the overall. Are the police liable to release that information? Is that what usually happens in situations, not particularly that one, but similar cases? To my understanding, there's no, <clears throat> there's no legislation that forces them to release that data. They have recently released to the Parliamentary Committee inquiry that they've given out about 5,600 fines so far, totaling about 8 to $9 million in fine revenue. So they are releasing some data and slowly, but for transparency and for community accountability, we really need Victoria Police to release more of the details and the specifics of both fines and stops. What's been the um, reaction to your request to have this made public? Uh, we haven't received any reaction or any comment from Victoria Police on these requests so far. Uh, and I guess time will tell. Maybe further on in the parliamentary inquiry, pressure will mount for those things to come out, and they will. That's a hope. 5600 is a lot, isn't it? It's a lot of money. Yeah, it's $8 million that, is, that Victorians are down in because of these fines, which is it's an extraordinary amount of money, especially for those who are living on income support or low income. But for anyone, really, a $1,500 on-the-spot fine is extraordinary. It's a particularly heavy-handed response here in Victoria. We've given out more fines than any other state in Australia. And compared to other states who started off police in the pandemic with a series of, you know, days and weeks of warnings only being given. Victoria Police uh, went straight into issuing fines 
from the get-go without doing any sort of period of warnings for the community to become informed about what they are and aren't allowed to do. Is this a directive from the government, do you believe, or from the higher up in the police department? I'm not sure where that would have come from, but I believe it would have been a Victoria Police decision about how they were going to enforce the rules and restrictions. Have you found in the past that Victoria Police are fairly heavy-handed in situations maybe not quite the same as this, but similar? I think Victoria Police do have a history and a uh, reputation for for doing heavy-handed policing. One of the problems during this pandemic is with everyone in lockdown and staying at home and going out less, there is less community oversight and less less opportunity for people to bear witness to the way that the police are handling things, which is a breeding ground for police to overstep the mark and for for police on on the beat to give out things in a more aggressive or more intimidating way than is necessary. Well, we can only hope, Sophie, that with the changes in the government's policy on people being out in the streets that the police will calm down a bit and stop doing these things. Yeah, we definitely can. And one thing that, would, that will, help, will help this happen is for people in the community, whether you're a witness to uh, over-policing or whether you're, you or your community are being over-policed themselves, is to get in contact with Fitzroy Legal Service or the COVID policing website and make a report so that we can keep the community informed and, and try and be the catalyst for accountability and change. What's the best way to get in contact? If you need legal advice on receiving a COVID-19 fine or charge, you can contact Fitzroy Legal Service. Uh, our phone line for that is 0434-136-501. To make a report about an interaction that you've had with police under the COVID pandemic uh, across Australia, you can go to covidpolicing.org.au and that's even if you don't get fined. You've been listening to Sophie Lestrange from the Fitzroy Legal Service. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855am on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. There is considerable concern about fake news and sophisticated and sleek videos circulating around social media about COVID-19 and treatments and indeed cures leading to confusion and mistrust. Unfortunately, there is a president in the United States who propagates a treatment which is dangerous and could cause sudden cardiac death, hydrochloroquinine, without revealing he has a big financial investment in the drug. In light of these concerns for the truth, I've invited back retired biochemist Coral Winter to help us sift through the lies and deceits at a time when, understandably, people are concerned. So welcome back, Coral, and how aware are you of just how much disinformation and downright dangerous disinformation is circulating on social media about the virus treatments and cures. One video I've seen by um, Judy Mikovits, a, a disgraced sort of virologist, but she's got all the qualifications. And she's from um, running a video called Global Health Protection, Global Health Mafia Protection Racket. It's really against the bureaucracies, against the World Health Organization. It's against... Anthony Fauci, who's trying to keep Trump on track to take, carry out the, the right measures to decrease the death toll of 100,000 now in the United States. In the end, that one is sort of a defense. It really doesn't say anything about Trump, but it's sort of a defense of Trump and, he, and the death toll, you know, trying to make out that Fauci 
is the problem and it is corrupt. And the other one on Ireland, coming out of Ireland, is a woman called Dolores Cahill. And you don't really know what on earth she's getting at either. But in the end, she's a, um, an anti-vaxxer. And so they're trying to make out that if you get the vaccine for the coronavirus, that you're, going, you're playing into this whole mafia-controlled, corrupt scheme in which they will make millions. And it turns out Dolores Carwell, and, and not until you watch till the end, that she's a member of the Irish Freedom Party, which is a small right-wing political party. And they're obviously against the whole Irish government and against women and against immigration and against a whole other different issues. But So they've got different aims. Well, I also think also part of the um, Judy Mikovic one is also against vaccinations. These ones in particular are being pushed by the anti-vaccine movement and, and to make people really fearful and to stop getting any sort of vaccination. But they've also got a political message, I think, of um, a, a, and it must be part of the alt-right new ideology of these new emerging fascist movements in all of these countries. It's interesting with the Dolores Cahill one where at the beginning of her interview she talks about all the the institutes and the universities that she's part of, which gives her the credentials of a person who you should listen to. Yes, it is. But when you check out, I checked out her publications. She's got 34 publications, but it's really about proteins. It's not about viruses and it's not about antibodies or vaccination. And the last paper had to be retracted. I don't know what the reason was, but it was obviously they found out it was false results or, or wrong experimental procedure or, you know, something terribly wrong was about it. But she doesn't mention that. But she goes on to talk about people who are publishing false results in scientific journals, but she doesn't admit that fact, you know. And so the problem is that you have to sort of take more time out to check the facts. You know, you've got to... And if you haven't got time to do that, then you are sort of influenced. Certainly one of them is, was a, you know, a highly qualified researcher in the university system for ages, for years. And, um, but she was also confused by it because, you know, the source of it came from, um, a, a professor who was in the legal department, from the ethics department. And so she, it sort of had some validity. And the other thing I wanted to mention also is that these videos are done by women and they're both sort of blonde haired, they're not gorgeous looking, but the older women who they think that the communities, any, anybody will trust more than, you know, white men. So that's interesting what they're doing as well. And also the drug that Trump was taking, she pushes that one too. I did read this morning that he stopped taking it. I don't know why. <laughs> yeah, that was interesting. I mean, they're pushing hydroxychloroquine. Yeah, and the information about that is contradictory and it's not clear. And, and Trump was pushing it and saying he was taking it, and so. But he's got. It does, at one point, he didn't mention that he's got huge amounts of money invested in that drug and has brought up companies in India that are making that drug. But when you check out the information, it's really dangerous. It can cause problems in the heart muscle. It delays the beating rhythm of the heart muscle. But when I, I mean, and when I checked, it was hard for anyone who didn't have a scientific background to understand it because they referred to these very precise names of like a QR interval. Well, you wouldn't know what that was unless you were a heart specialist or medical trained. So then you have to go and research that 
what does that exactly mean? So it, it all it all puts it all more difficult to uh, check all these facts and to understand what they're trying to say. But it is really um, dangerous. I, I know people who are on it who are taking it for an autoimmune disease, but they have to have their blood checked regularly to make sure that the levels are quite low and don't become too high and which will cause a heart problem. And, you know, you can die very suddenly of cardiac arrest because of it. So there's all these different angles in it. There must yes. be an awful lot of these videos and whatever circulating around the world. Yes, there are a lot of them. And, and I think it's because, you know, they're taking it, the right, that's the alt-right who I think are pushing it and financing it and, and making sure that even when the videos get taken down by Facebook and YouTube that they um, are, again, put back up on, on those different platforms and circulated. It's because people are, you know, really confused, they're anxious. People are feeling very insecure because they've lost their job. There's no guarantee that I'll get a job back. Facing maybe food shortages and because the price of food is going to go up, I think. Feeling so insecure and and anxious and, and in social isolation, so you're not able to talk with your friends or see your friends or meet up with people. So you're really isolated, creating a massive insecurity and and fear. And so these alt right are taking advantage of this situation and really pushing them out in a big way and making sure that they get you know like of course Facebook has I think something like three billion followers monthly. And the same with YouTube, that has also has something like 2 billion followers. So, you know, that's a huge number of people that are, are, are possibly receiving this and then putting these YouTubes, putting them onto their friends as well, sending them on. And, of course, the social isolation of people being forced to stay at home is just feeding into them, sitting home, looking at all these YouTube videos it just exacerbates yeah basically they're attacking any sort of social democratic government that is trying to carry out the right um, moves to limit this disease and and to push a line of um, anti-immigration what what i am really worried about is the, the attacks on the chinese government and the chinese people they're also including saying that this um, virus, they're taking up Trump's line that the virus is man-made, that it was formed in a laboratory in Wuhan. But when you look at the facts, that isn't right. You know, that isn't true. I mean, I know Delors, a 12-base insertion into the virus that doesn't appear in other coronaviruses, but that's normal. That happens all the time because these um, viruses, if they're in the same cell, can extract large, swap large amounts of RNA so it, it, it would happen really naturally. And, but unless you knew you were a molecular biologist and were aware of how viruses function and work, you wouldn't know that. And, um, and she talked about molecules like furin. You know, it's all very confusing. I had to look up what a furin was, but it's a protease. It's on the host, the cell of the, of the human cells in the lung or any, or many cells um, in the body, but that can sort of then allow the virus to fuse with the, the viral membrane to break down and to fuse with the cellular membrane. But unless you sort of go back and research that stuff or look at it or, and try and understand what she's saying, there's no way you could invalidate the message they're, they're putting across. It's a, a difficult situation, but, uh, you know, it's probably, 
I'm sure many of the videos are also financed by, you know, the alt-right and the big corporations, you know, who would put money into it because to spread this whole fear and insecurity and an attack on any, I think, social democratic government that is doing the right, taking out the right moves. And in the end, so, it, you know, in the Irish one is also a defence of Boris Johnson and what he did with um, 35,000 deaths in in England and and the lockdown, you know, they they also their whole secret um, ambition as well is to get the, uh, the the to finish the lockdown and to get people back to work so they can start making their profits. It's often hard to find out, yeah, who's financing these videos and who's pushing them because they don't give their names. You know, they don't say who the interviewer is or what company is doing this. But yeah, so it's very very difficult and confusing for, for most people. And of course, with the video featuring Dolores, with all those places, those universities that she's been involved with, and then she can name all these proteins and all these scientific words and phrases, she's the voice of authority, so you must believe her. They're very clever. I mean, they're they're very, very clever. This is not sort of people who are unprofessional or... So they're using scientific people with people who have got some sort of um, background or study in, in the, a scientific area, so it sounds so plausible. But the problem is you don't know what the political motivation of these people are. Probably quite a few scientists who have a alt-right conviction but wouldn't go public on it. But these are people who are scientists who have been trained in the area but for whatever reason have a, a political line to push which is that of the alternative right. You know, the one also, the Dolores Carl one, is also in the end anti-woman because the party she stands for, Irish Freedom Party, is against immigration. They think that Arabs and Indians and Asians are replacing the white uh, Irish family in Ireland. They're against the abortion changes that made, that came about in Ireland in the last year when they voted for abortion rights. So they're opposed to all of that. They want to keep women in the home. So they're pro-right to life. They have that agenda. And she admits right at the end, though, you know, that she's president of the Irish Freedom Party. But that wasn't clear until you got to the, the end of the half-hour video. So, yeah, and it's interesting they're using women to push this line because they are more believable or seem to be more honest than white men. What's your advice, then, for people who see any videos concerning the virus? Don't pass anything on. Don't pass any of these videos on. And You have to go to qualified resources like um, the ABC with the podcast on coronavirus. There's a medical doctor there. You have to go into the journal, scientific journal. Just have a quick look at some of the scientific journals. There's a lot of information out there, but the written material is probably more reliable than the videos. Um, But you do have to check it out. The one thing, you know, I'm really worried about the anti-Chinese move. This is also part, I think, of the campaign to defend the United States and its policies in the West against the rise of China. It's obviously a more organised and powerful economy. Promoting a whole anti-Asian with a whole lot of racism. And so I'm really worried, concerned about what's going to happen here in particular um, and the attacks on the Asian-looking people who, who they think... Have, you know, if you push this message that the whole thing, that the coronavirus was orchestrated and made in a laboratory in Wuhan, 
then, you know, that's going to make people angry, especially people who have lost their elderly parents. Like they're real worried what this, what is happening, what's going on, and the attack on, on information. And we have to be really, really wary of this disinformation campaign. And people have to take responsibility for anything they hand they on to other their friends on Facebook. Really stop and think first. What's what what is the real message of this? Is it anti vaccination? Is it anti woman? Is it anti abortion rights? Is it a whole lot of other issues? You know, the, the defence of, of um, Trump and the defence of Johnson and their ghastly policies, which were so careless, and and also you know the push to get the economy working again and put that above any health issues. So, and also, you know, those huge demonstrations in America where people have campaigned to restart the economy and to start and to get rid of social isolation is also, they'd be the community who are, communities who are pushing these videos as well. So to be very, very, very wary. I've been speaking with retired biochemist Cora Winter.